0: Very great pleasure, Pam Ross. Thanks, Mark. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Mark. Um, So, yes, today I am going to talk a bit about, um, well, driving it. I think I advertised it as just on brain injury, but um, I'll get on to brain injury in a bit more detail. But I thought, I wasn't sure what knowledge everybody had, so I thought it was probably good to um, uh, just go through the basics first the roles and responsibilities of us as health professionals for driving and the driver licensing authorities and drivers, and for those that aren't OTs to know a bit more about what we do to assess people, Um, a little bit about a variety of neurological conditions, and then I'll just present a bit on my PhD and what I've found, I suppose, um, a bit further on. So when we talk about fitness to drive, what do we actually mean? And I've really taken this from the Ostroad's um, Assessing Fitness to Drive. And if any of you are never sh- unsure of, if you have a patient with a particular condition, There are a set of guidelines um, for any of us, many doctors, I suppose, to look up, uh, to to look at what the rules or regulations, actually they're not regulations, they're just guidelines about those conditions. And um, if you read them, you'll find often they're quite uh, difficult to, really apply (laughs) so we so i'll talk a bit more about that later so the aim of determining fitness to drive is to achieve a balance between minimizing any driving related road safety risks for the individual and the community posed by the driver's permanent or long-term injury or illness and maintaining the driver's lifestyle and employment related mobility independence so it's all encompassing there And the key words are really that the driver has a permanent or long-term injury that might affect their driving, so that's really what we're talking about here. so the DLA or the Driver Licensing Authority in Victoria is um, VicRoads and their uh, role is basically to make all decisions about licensing of drivers. Um, they consider any reports that OTs sent in, doctors, neuropsychologists, anyone really, police, members of the public, um, and they will look at someone's crash involvement and their conviction histories if they're, when they're looking at making a decision about someone's driving capacity. Um, And their other responsibility is basically educating the driving public of their responsibility to report any long-term injury or illness. Um, And if we move on to what the responsibilities are of the driver, uh, and it's something that often our patients don't understand and we aren't, as just drivers aren't aware of, but it is actually our responsibility to report to VicRoads if we have any long-term or permanent injury that might affect our driving. Um, the other responsibilities of the driver are that drivers should be aware that there might be a long- term um, some financial or insurance consequences if they continue to drive and they've been not uh, they haven't disclosed that they have an impairment to VicRoads. And they also have a responsibility to respond truthfully to questions from us <laughs> around their health status and the likely impact on driving. And they should also adhere to any medical, uh, treatment and if any conditions are placed on their license then also their responsibility is to comply to those. Um, but our responsibility as health professionals um, are basically to provide a, a, medi- a medical um, opinion I guess of someone's uh, driving ability based on that those OSTROADS guidelines I was talking about and we have a duty of care to actually tell people um, and advise them about the impact of their condition on driving or the potential impact. So we do actually have a duty of care to do that. Um, and we also have a, a responsibility to let people know how their condition might affect their driving. And I think I always say to people that um, if you have made advise someone about their um, the potential impact of their condition write a note in a medical file make sure you document that you've done it okay now all of that's all very well but what happens when you have somebody who has cognitive impairment and um, most of us have that issue with a lot of our patients um, so even though we have the uh, you know we, we have to advise people um, sometimes we might have to consider, Reporting the condition to VicRoads on their behalf, if they're firstly unable to appreciate the impact of their condition, or they're unable to take notice of the health uh, professionals' recommendations due to cognitive impairment—for instance, you know, memory issues, um, lack of insight—and particularly if they continue to drive despite the fact that we've advised them not to. Um, then we also have a responsibility to notify VicRoads around that as well. Um, And when you notify VicRoads, they will then uh, write to that uh, person and ask them to Uh, obtain a satisfactory medical report from their doctor and in that way the doctor can then, if there is a condition, they can disclose to VicRoads and then VicRoads will normally ask um, if the doctor asks for a a driving assessment, a practical assessment um, that will take place then. So that's sort of uh, the background to what I'm about to talk about really. So you might have seen this one before, but how do we assess driving? so if it was only as simple as that, that would be fantastic. Pop the dog in the seat and see what happens. But the whole, um, it, look it's a complex area and there's so many things to consider but hopefully that this talk will give you sort of the, some understanding of the, all the issues and what we can do. Um, so, the doctor's role firstly um, is to provide just a medical assessment. Uh, sometimes the doctors um, find it difficult because they think they're actually trying to say, well, can this person drive a car or not? Well, they can't. They don't know what, how practically the person's going to manage. But their, their responsibility is to advise about any other comorbid morbid conditions and things like you know, diabetes, psychiatric conditions, sleep apnea. Um, Substance misuse is another one and sometimes um, like a GP for instance may require another specialist's report or sometimes Vic Rhodes ask for additional reports say from a psychiatrist or a neurologist endocrinologist. The other um, really important thing and I know this sounds pretty basic but eyesight is really the first thing almost that you need to assess because without adequate eyesight we can't drive and the, um, often, as OTs, we will do a screen of someone's eyesight in, in the um, off-road assessment, but um, often it's also good to get an eye specialist involved. And just, you know, basic acuity is quite easy to assess, but particularly after, say, a brain injury, you might have a double vision or diplopia. Um, hemianopias are, sort of can be, happen after stroke. Various visual field deficits. Um, And then older drivers often have diseases of the eye, such as cataracts, glaucoma or macular degeneration. And for some of us who will recognise these slides. I've got to acknowledge that um, some of these slides are just um, from a talk that, uh, a community mobility talk for older drivers and they illustrate some different eyesight conditions. So um, I have to acknowledge La Trobe University and the TAC for lending me these slides. Um, If you look at this picture, you can sort of see it's in the evening, quite easy to uh, see the fellow in the white t-shirt there. But if I do that, it's a bit blurred, um, and that's really designed, it's supposed to represent what it would be like having um, cataracts. And they've been described a bit like looking through a dirty windscreen. Um, so you can see if someone was developing cataracts, their eyesight would be impacted. This is a, um, supposed to depict what it would be like with an extreme case of glaucoma, where you've lost your peripheral vision. Just got central vision, and it's a treatable disease. So you know, people really should be getting their eyes tested once they're over 40, every couple of years, so that they can um, that can be picked up and treated. Macular degeneration is another uh, issue that can occur, and you can see that people tend to lose their central vision, and um, that obviously also impacts driving. So, if we just think, I'm going to talk firstly a bit more about older drivers, and um, you know whether you deal, no matter what area you're dealing in with, if it's just traumatic brain injury or, or obviously stroke, you'll um, end up with, or normally older drivers uh, or older people in your practice, um, and we know that most older drivers do have deteriorating eyesight and hearing, and. Um, Sometimes they can also just, over time, um, they lose physical strength and flexibility and range of movements, so they're not, particularly neck, not as flexible. Um, and also age-related diseases are more common, such as arthritis and various neurological conditions. And sometimes also reaction times slow down just as they get older, and also they're more likely to be taking medication. But does that mean that all dry, older drivers should be assessed? And there's there's quite a bit of controversy about the whole issue of older drivers and whether they should be assessed. And the difficulty we have in Australia is that each state has its own driver licensing authority with different requirements. So, for instance, I won't go through all of these, but in Victoria we don't have any age-based testing but if you lived in Queensland or the ACT, once you're over 75, you have to go and see a doctor every year to say that you're medically fit to drive. Western Australia, it's over 80. But if you're in WA, once you're 85, you'd actually have to have a licence test every year. And New South Wales, again, it's over 75 to produce a medical certificate, and then over 85, a licence test every two years. And South Australia, it's even younger, it's from 70. You've got to actually pass a medical and an eyesight test and practical one after 85. And in Tasmania, they just scrapped it all and decided that they'd go the same as Victoria and the Northern Territory. Um, So basically, um, in Victoria, I think there's been quite a bit of research from um, MUARC, well, now they're the Monash Institute of roads, no, I've forgotten what they're called. They used to be called Monash University Accident Research Centre, they've changed their name to MIRI, whatever that stands for. But a lot of the um, the research has shown that age itself isn't a good predictor of driving ability, so it really should be someone's functional ability and that's partly why in Victoria we don't have um, age-based testing. And just for an example, um, recently i heard of an 80-year-old who managed to drive from Sorrento to Melbourne, caught the Ferry to Queenslift, went down the Great Ocean Road to Apollo Bay, stayed a week, came back through Geelong, all unfamiliar areas, busy traffic, windy roads, no problems. Um, and I've also had a 90-year-old uh, a couple of years ago who had a brain injury. It was quite mild. She was dreadful on the on-road assessment. Um, really, I mean, I just thought... <laughs> You know, feared for my life. Actually, I don't often do that, but it was quite a, a, um, a challenging assessment. But she was insistent that she needed her license, so we had six driving lessons in her local area, and she was reassessed, and she was fine just to drive within that area, within five k's. Um, so, um, you know, you can't really just base um, a driving driver's ability on age. So, with regard to um, assessing clients. Um, We as OTs have to make sure that the person's medically fit and they can see, basically, that there's no problems. Um, But we would also then go ahead and look at any motor, physical kind of issues that might affect driving. Cognitive um, is a little more difficult to uh, to assess um, in a clinical situation. Um, And behavioural are also very difficult to assess um, even on road because people are usually on their best behaviour. So if someone is... um, has anger issues or whatever, you don't often see that in an on road assessment. So that's, they're quite challenging to, to work out. So the sorts of assessments that have, um, look, there's lots of research gone into trying to find off road tests, um, a lot of e- e- um, research into looking at neuropsychology tests and whether they predict um, on road Driving results, and they basically don't. Some tests are good for screening, but they don't actually predict whether somebody can drive a car or not. And more recently, there's been um, a bit of um, interest in dri- using driving simulators to affect, uh, and I'll talk uh, sorry to assess people, but I'll talk about that a bit later in the talk. Um, they're quite good for retraining, but certainly not for assessing fitness to drive. So the practical taking someone in a car on-road assessment is the gold standard still for assessing driving. Um, and in Australia, it's OTs that have done additional training. Um, and in Victoria, we're registered with Vic Roads to do those sorts of assist- assessments. The main issue with a driving assessment is the cost of it, um, and that. Um, availability in rural areas it's um, more difficult for people in the country to access driving assessors so in the ot driving assessment we we do an off it's two parts off-road and on-road off-road is we're really just gathering information uh screening for eyesight what medication physical issues some, some people do reaction times using a brake reaction tester. We're always interested in someone's past driving experience and also what they need to drive, where they need to go. Insight plays a huge part um, in, whether, in your assessment of whether someone's uh, fit to drive, I guess, and whether they're going to comply with any conditions you put on. Um, a bit about road law knowledge, and some OTs will also do a cognitive screen. Um, The on-road assessment usually goes from about um, 45 minutes to an hour, always in a dual-control car with a driving instructor giving the instructions and maintaining safety, which is important. And most OTs will do a sort of a set driving route, but there's a lot of private OTs who are working out in the community and um, often they're doing the assessment in the person's local area. Um, And... um, At the end we would always provide feedback to the client, um, and the OT assesses driving by um, recording sort of non-critical and critical errors, so critical meaning if the driving instructor has intervened um, by grabbing the steering wheel or braking, whatever it might be. but it's, sometimes someone can actually fail an assessment for other reasons, even though there's not been any critical error. They just, you know, they might not maintain their lanes, or there they could be just a, they might fatigue halfway through. And I'll talk a bit more about that further in the talk. But as OTs, we're basically looking at a number of sort of key behaviours, such as their observation, gap selection, the lane position on the road, response to hazards. Um, the actual control of the car with accelerator, brake, steering, and speed control and monitoring, and um, we then have to advise VicRoads of the outcome of the assessment. Um, often, if someone fails, well, um, we I would normally, depending on what their condition is, but you would often um, allow them to take some driving lessons. That might be uh, not the case if someone has a deteriorating condition like dementia, for instance. That, that so I'll talk again a bit more about that further on. Um, so normally we would make sure people have had some sort of rehab before you actually fa- uh, take their license away or suspend it. And sometimes we can um, provide a or recommend a conditional or restricted license. And as I mentioned before, restricting people to a, an area, um, automatic, time of day, um, Maybe no passengers if they're particularly distractible, and the other thing is just the adaptive equipment for physical issues like a spinner knob for someone that's lost the use of one arm. There's more sophisticated spinner knobs around now with um, you know the indicators and uh, all built into it, so a bit easier to use. Left foot accelerator pedal um, and um, hand controls for people who've um, you know had spinal injuries. So when we talk a bit about um, I'm going to talk a bit more about now about specific neurological conditions and I'm not going into great detail within this talk, Um, but I guess when you're looking at someone's capacity to drive, the main question is, is the condition progressive, like going to get worse, dementia, Parkinson's disease or MS, or are they likely to improve? So after a stroke or a brain injury, you're likely to see improvement. And that may change, make your um, decision-making, help make the decision, I guess, in terms of driving capacity. And also their level of insight and self-awareness for any condition seems to um, certainly impact on someone's ability to drive safely in the longer term. So dementia, now I have an expert here on dementia. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, I'm going to just give you a bit of a, um, a brief rundown on it. Um, it is associated with a moderately high risk of crashes and people might often present with navigation difficulties. So they, And when we take them out as OTs, we usually get them to try and navigate around their local area and you, you might often can see that people forget where they are and they get lost in their, fami- in their familiar areas. Um, they may also have concentration difficulties, they miss stop signs, give way signs, not very good at judging distances um, or the speed of other cars, and sometimes that confusion between accelerator and brake pedal when they're in a bit of a stressful situation. Um, oops, sorry, There we are. Um, If you're concerned about someone's driving and they have dementia, it's a good idea to... There's a a few articles. I've actually got um, some resources at the end uh, after this section on uh, sort of... Well, these questions, for instance, there's a couple of good journal articles that have been written and so about trying to... um, The questions you can ask caregivers to get an idea of whether someone should be driving. So, firstly, are they getting disoriented or lost? Do they forget where they're going um, or why they're going out? Have they had near misses or crashes? Um, Do they lose the car in a car park? Um, A lot of people do that. Um, unexplained scrapes, dents on cars, um, and as I said, driving through stop signs and being slow just to make decisions at intersections. Um, can they tell left from right? Do they stay in the lane while they're driving? Um, do they get more aggressive or angry? Um, have they had speeding infringements, been pulled over? Do people toot their horn more at them? Um, and do they not see, you know, other? perhaps cyclists, pedestrians, and they have difficulty car- parking. So um, if they um, they also may continue to drive without a valid licence, even perhaps once it's suspended, um, and I think, again, as OTs, we often have to deal with that, what um, to do about it. So even though you may have decided someone isn't fit to drive with dementia, um, the family may still report that they're driving, but obviously removing the keys is... <laughs> the most obvious thing to to do, but it can create huge issues. Um, And there's, um, often there's a lot of support that can be needed for people if they are, it doesn't matter what condition they've got, but how they're going to get around the community and manage their lives. Um, So as OTs we often have to provide some support with that as well. Um, And also by referring perhaps the family to a um, dementia support group or Alzheimer's association. And these are some of the resources that, um, uh, you know, you can refer families to, um, or as a, um, if you're a health professional wanting more information, there's certainly a lot out there about dementia. Um, so other conditions like Parkinson's, and Parkinson's is quite a challenge to, as to, to assess with Fitness to Drive because, um, well, because of the fact that it changes, you know, during the day. Um, so it's a condition that's affecting about 1% to 2% of people aged over 60 and we're expecting that it will increase as the population ages. Um, it involves the central and peripheral nervous systems and of course there's motor changes, um, cognitive changes and sleep disturbance as well. So, um, and also the medica- some of the medications for Parkinson's can um, lead to psychosis and behavioural disturbances. Such as, but compulsive behaviours and impulsivity. So it presents a huge challenge um, to really decide if someone is fit to drive with Parkinson's disease. Um, And if you're going, if we're going to assess them, um, it's all very well seeing them if they're sort of, you know, everything's working well and they're fine. But then, you know, five hours later, they may not be, and that's um, a tricky one. Probably a team approach is required there. the guidelines in the Ostroads guide uh, medical fitness to drive guidelines just state that the person with Parkinson's isn't fit to drive if they've got significant um, impairment of movement, significant impairment of reaction time, and or if there's an onset of dementia and that's where a neuropsychology assessment's useful. Um, But, you know, those guidelines, it's very difficult to apply, really, to say, well, what does significant mean? So, um, yeah, it's a challenging condition. Um, TIAs, or transient ischemic attacks, the guidelines state that um, someone shouldn't drive for two weeks following one. Um, they're generally not associated with a high risk of accidents, but if they're followed by a stroke, or they could be followed by a stroke, then that, that's one of the dangers. Um, because, um, and, and there's a 15% risk of another TIA occurring within the three months uh, following that. Um, so, yeah, there's a bit of a, a risk around them, but not, it's not a, a high risk. Stroke. Sorry, I thought I had MS in here, maybe I've got MS next. No, I'll just go back. <laughs> Must be after stroke, sorry. Oh, <laughs> should have just left that, okay. So with stroke... Um, so I'm just working out previous. So, I'm using it, usually I use a keyboard, it's a bit different. OK, so with stroke, it's the um, leading cause of disability in Australia. mean age of people is about 72 years old. And in the literature, it's between 19 to 54% of people return to driving. Um, the, again, in Victoria, or in Australia, the Austroad guidelines advise people not to drive for four weeks after a stroke. I personally think that's pretty far too early. Um, I'm, yeah, it's an in, I'm not sure where that guideline came from, but um, I would think most people need to wait longer than that. Um, and uh, at Epworth, we recommend three months after stroke, and then we will look at it, um, not, not actually let people drive. I mean, there are some people with very mild strokes, I guess, that are perhaps OK around six weeks, but um, anyway, that varies a bit depending on the severity of the stroke. Um, And also when you read the research, there's actually no evidence that stroke drivers are more likely to be involved in accidents um, and that they often do modify their behaviour. But I don't know, I'll query that one as well. (laughs) But um, so with stroke, the the guidelines again say that someone isn't fit to drive if there's a significant impairment with visual perception. Ins- Visuospatial perception. Sorry, insight, judgment, attention, reaction time, memory, and you know physical issues. And again, very hard to apply those guidelines. So really, the best thing to do if you have someone who's had a stroke and wants to return to driving is to have a, do a practical driving assessment. Um, and again, if um, the, sometimes we do get family members who are concerned with someone's driving after stroke and a similar sort of questions to ask a caregiver um, as the dementia questions I told you about. But, you know, driving too fast or too slowly for conditions. Um, sometimes passengers can um, be providing instructions or helping. That can often ha- happen with older drivers as well where the husband's driving and the wife's the one looking out for um, hazards. Seen that happen, um, and uh, yeah, getting frustrated, confused, perhaps getting lost. Again, the near misses and drifting across lanes. Um, I mean, yeah, they're all pretty significant. Um, we can always with stroke uh, deal with the physical assess uh, impairment by using vehicle modifications, and people do improve over time. So we tend to. Um, reassess if someone does fail and you think it's too early, you might suggest coming back three months, six months later. Um, and yeah, they do benefit from driver retraining. Um, and there's, I, we had someone recently at Epworth who none of us thought he would drive and he was absolutely determined to do it. And he has got back to driving, And but he's dense um, Hemi on one side, aphasic, and uh, has made great gains. And Two years post stroke, it's quite in, yeah, it's was, it was good to see, but it's not something we expected, but has had a lot of input, driver rehabilitation. MS, um, another complicated one <laughs> to deal with, again, because it can change during times of the day. And I think one of the, the literature says that if you have someone with MS, um, and in the early stages, driving isn't such an issue, but as they uh, progress, provided someone has insight, then they can often monitor their driving. It's when the insight is lacking that um, there's a much higher risk of um, being involved in accidents and being unfit to drive. Um, and because it's a deteriorating condition and it, the time course varies so much, it's something that um, the person needs to be monitored over time, um, medically and perhaps needing driving assessments every. Um, year or whatever it might, two, two years. Um, it can be difficult to assess, particularly if someone has sort of had a, a remission and they may not be fit to drive. But then, obviously, they may improve and then they'll be okay again. Um, the accident rate for drivers with SMS is estimated to be three times that for higher um, of similar aged, healthy individuals. Um, I actually had a lady last week, it was quite stressful, we were going, she's decided that she, um, uh, she's she been driving with her right foot but it's, she really needs to look at hand controls and, um, but to get to the place to look at the hand controls we had to head all the way out to Dandenong, it was 35 degrees and there were three of us in a row, the patient, all in different cars, patient driving and two OTs and we all got lost. <laughs> And it was a real worry because we got there but, you know, she was exhausted um, but she'd driven her car there. I thought, you know, she should have got a taxi. We probably should have suggested that. and it's such a difficult thing because she obviously got home again okay, but um, it, she's in that situation where you know she probably shouldn't be driving, but she is coping, and it's a very fine line. Um, she's got enough insight to know that she wouldn't normally drive if she's fatigued, but it's it's also difficult for people with MS to decide. Well, when do I then? When do I take the plunge and move you know to hand controls and then? Now her hands are getting weaker, is it worth doing all these expensive modifications, how much longer I'm actually going to be able to drive? So none of this is easy. It it involves working with the person and, um, you know, just looking at, I guess, trying to advise, you know, the best scenario and looking at what, what needs that person has with regard to driving. Um, it really does take a team approach because there might be visual changes, so you're needing to get an eye specialist involved, um, obviously the um, medical, the doctor with any uh, medication, and neuropsychology assessments can be useful if cognitive changes are occurring, and there's the whole gamut of motor or physical issues with sensation, coordination, um, yeah, so it's, it's um, quite complex. Seizures and epilepsy, I'm not really going into that because normally, um, basically, VicRoads nearly always require a neurologist's opinion as to whether someone's fit to drive or not. um, And so we really have to... um, rely on, on their advice and also the guidelines vary with private or commercial vehicles. I should have mentioned actually all these guidelines that I've talked about so far are just for people driving their own private car, not for um, trucks and buses and so forth, there's a different set of guidelines contained in the same document. Intracranial surgery, um, again that the period of non-driving might vary depending on the neurosurgeon but it's usually three to six months and also sometimes a neuropsych assessment may be required and a driving assessment. Traumatic brain injury, so this is where I'll spend a little bit more time. Um, It can be obviously affected, again you've got physical issues to consider, cognitive issues which are all listed there with concentration, speed of processing, planning, problem solving, self-awareness, fatigue is the key one, and behavioural issues as well. And this is what the guidelines say about brain injury, that um, basically if someone's had a seizure, um, it will only affect their licensing if it becomes a more chronic problem. Sometimes people have a seizure at the time of the accident and that's not uh, classed as epilepsy. But in terms of um, a minor head injury involving a loss of consciousness of less than a minute don't usually result in long-term impairment. And if you've had a TBI causing a loss of consciousness, you shouldn't drive for a minimum of 24 hours. So it's a little bit hard to know then, um, if we go down to the bottom guideline, that um, a person isn't fit to hold an unconditional licence if the head injuries resulted in significant visual, physical and cognitive impairment. So most of these guidelines all talk about significant impairment, which is very hard to define for anyone. And also they don't give any guidelines about, it's all very well if you've had a very minor head injury, you don't drive for 24 hours. But actually there's research that shows that people, even after a minor head injury, still have cognitive impairment, particularly the first week and sometimes up to three months. So, you know, it can really vary. Um, So I'm going to stop now there, just to see if anyone has any comments, questions about what I've talked about, because I'm now going to talk a lot... More about brain injury, and that's what my PhD's been yeah. on. And uh, just give you a summary, I'm not going into great detail, so don't get scared. <laughs> Has anyone got any comments or questions at this stage? Can I ask Pam, are you yeah. in a car with a driving instructor? Or yeah. No, well what happens, and that's what I'll talk about um, in the next part, the driving instructors do the training, but we provide the input as to what the goals of the lessons are, but look they're integral to the whole process, I mean, yeah, and in fact that's the next part of the talk is a bit about, um, yeah, that that basically there's different types of training you can look at, but actually taking people in a car on road is really the best method. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we don't go in the car normally unless there's dual controls. (laughs) People get, actually, that's a comment, a lot of um, particularly older drivers, when you take them out, they actually get um, a bit annoyed because they will say, well, um, I'm not used to this car, therefore you should assess me in my car. And we have to explain, well, that's all very well. And like these days, I mean, part of being able to drive is, if it's an automatic car and it's just a normal size, I mean, we're not asking them to drive a tank or something. It's, you know, it's all, it's being able to adapt as well. And, um, yeah, and but that's often a criticism. Mm. All right, well, I'll continue on with this. So I guess... Um, most people would want to know why I actually started a PhD, and I often ask myself the same question. <laughs> but it's, I think, look, the question we're all asked is, when can I return to driving? It's, you know, that's a very common question in, for working in rehab anyway. And it is, it has, it's often difficult to answer, and um, well, particularly what I've just gone through, all those guidelines make it difficult. There's also, like internationally, there's lack of uniform assessment and rehab procedures. And also, um, well after a brain injury for instance, there's such a range of um, issues we see and it all depends on severity of injury, but then it doesn't, it's not only that, it might be their driving experience. Um, So it's it's such a range of issues. So I thought that having done at least 3,000 on-road assessments over 25 years, I thought I'd seen a pattern with brain injury (laughs) as to the sort of drivers or patients that I thought probably didn't need to be assessed and those that did. But I didn't have any evidence to support what I had observed clinically um, and like about who to refer for driving, when to refer, um, if we gave them driver rehab what were the outcomes and what was their safety like that was because i work at, in um, my other well my main role at epworth's actually getting people back to work i often would keep in touch with people monitoring them at work for you know maybe a year after their driving assessment and i sort of noticed they didn't all seem to be out there having accidents but i didn't actually know that so That's why I started the PhD to find out more about what happens after a brain injury um, and to sort of try and answer some of these questions and to get some evidence. So really the whole objective of it was to just try and contribute to the current knowledge about getting back to driving after brain injury and to help with clinical decision making really so that we're offering our patients the best possible assessment and rehab. So, that was seven years ago, I thought that. And now I'm... Um, But look, I guess with driving something that, um, not being able to drive, and particularly after a brain injury where you've got often a younger population, it can have a devastating impact on people's lives. And we know from research that people who can't drive um, are less able to, uh, they're less successful in being able to maintain employment, community participation, being out sort of visiting friends, just daily life activities. And also driving's often associated with self-identity and um, and for many people not being able to drive, they lose many roles they have within a family. So it's important that in rehab um, we actually Assess people's, or give them the opportunity to have their driving assessed, and to provide interventions for those who fail. And I think that's something that doesn't always happen particularly well. So, the whole aims of my study were: firstly, I, I hadn't, I wanted to just document the sort of patient characteristics of the people we'd seen at Epworth, and what the outcomes were after they'd been through a program. I also wanted to look at their pre-injury and injury-related factors that might influence that um, outcome of the on-road assessment. And then to actually look at the uh, goals and the um, outcomes and also the resources of of, um, driver rehab. So how many driving lessons did people need on average and how much did that cost and so that's another focus and I'll talk about that in a bit more detail. And then to look at their um, self-reported safety and their patterns of driving behaviour, had they changed at all. So they were really the main aims of the study and also to look also at the people who passed their driving assessment, who were the PASS group and the people that needed driver rehab, I wanted to look at the differences in what differentiated those two groups. And another, just a more subsidiary aim, was the fact that um, when you read the literature there really isn't anything much in the um, literature at all about driver rehab and um, how, it's a, how you do it. <laughs> so that was really where the other goal was to actually try and get that out there. So I've done the structure of the PhD's three studies. Um, the first one has been published and it's looking at um, predictors of on-road performance. The second one is more about the, driving, the driver rehab and driving lessons and also the use of restricted or conditional licences. And the third one is looking more at the long-term safety and behaviour. So I'll just give you a brief um, summary of each of those. Um, I've already told you what the first one was, so basically um, there were 207 people or participants in the sample with mild to severe TBA, with a mean post-traumatic amnesia duration of about 23 days, and all of them had gone through the on, done an on-road assessment and were at least three months or more post-injury. And as I said, they got divided into the group that passed their initial assessment and the group that needed driver rehab. So 66% of this group passed the assessment and their mean post traumatic amnesia was 16 days and if you compare that the group who 34% that needed driver rehab actually in this group i also there were a few 19 people who actually had a second or a third on road assessment they didn't actually have but i put them in this same group mean post pta of 39 days so you can see immediately there was a significant difference in injury severity which is what you'd expect it's pretty you know, basic really but but after driver rehab only three of them didn't get back to driving so that's out of the 207 people that came through only three didn't get back to driving and we looked at you know with statistical analysis the drive the rehab group the more severe group were more likely to be female and I'll tell you why in the next study (laughs) and they had um, significantly lower GCS scores and longer PTA duration, so they were more severe, slower reaction times and more physical injuries, which is what you'd expect for why they failed their driving assessment or needed driver rehab. I don't really like the word failed, it means they just needed extra work on them before they were fit to drive. So the conclusions from this study were that PTA was a better predictor of driver assessment outcome than GCS score and in Australia we use PTA duration much more commonly than say the US, they don't use it as much but certainly all the research for any functional outcome um, finds that PTA is a better predictor than GCS score. So I guess in combination if you have someone that's male with a shorter PTA duration, um, physical, sorry, no physical impairment and slower reaction times. Actually, I think I've written that wrong. Anyway, um, looking at those variables, 88% of the pass group could be classified looking at those variables and 71% of the rehab group. Um, <clears throat> and I was very interested to see that driving experience wasn't a significant predictor and quite surprised actually because um, We know that in the road accident research um, or statistics, the inexperienced drivers and the older drivers tend to have more accidents. Um, So I had expected that I would have more, you know, very young inexperienced drivers and older drivers. That didn't prove to be the case. Um, I'm also wondering whether it was I just didn't have enough of them in the sample, but um, certainly clinically I I would expect think that if you have someone that's only driven for three months or or, or is sort of over 80, 85, you might want to assess them. Um, And so providing on-road driver rehab was certainly uh, associated with getting back to driving. Um, The Driver Rehabilitation Study, um, well what is driver rehab? It basically aims to improve driving skills, change behaviour and develop compensatory strategies to help a driver cope with impairments. Um, In the sort of OT literature about what types of interventions people provide, um, there's various off-road education programs, so where people might try and just talk a bit more about road law and road knowledge, using a driving simulator to try and improve driving skills, and some um, a lot of um, people have sometimes tried to just target specific skills, so try to improve someone's concentration or speed of processing by specific tasks. there's certainly much more evidence now to show that if you're going to try and retrain some skills, you need to do it in the right context. So driving lessons, being in the car, actually practising the driving skill is certainly found to be a more effective approach than just training cognitive, um, skills specific, uh, targeting specific skills. So in Australia, the main form of um, driver rehabilitation is on-road driving lessons provided by driving instructors and under the direction of an OT. One of the problems um, we are facing, I think, as OT driving assessors, is that um, there's not any formal way of training the driving instructors. So many of us have worked with instructors that have kind of just learnt, like, you know, and um, and a few of those are about to retire. And um, it's trying to look at ways of actually training people uh, you know, to have some basic understanding of medical conditions and, and techniques for actually training people. Um, but in the research there's, that's actually been identified sort of more as an issue in um, certainly also in the US, Canada and England, they're finding that they're now starting to look more at using driving lessons to retrain and again the same issue that lack of trained, experienced driving instructors. Um, And also in the literature, lots of, lots of studies have looked at predictors for who's going to pass and who's going to fail an assessment, but nothing about, well, what are you going to do about all the people that fail? Um, There's really not much out there saying, well, if you provide an intervention, these are the outcomes. Um, So potential reasons for failing a driving assessment might include confusion, impulsivity, slowness, distractibility, inattention and anxiety. Also things like lack of recent driver experience if you've been stuck in hospital or not been able to drive for a couple of years and then you're just put in a car and told to drive, well that's a pretty challenging thing to do with no recent driving experience so sometimes people fail or need extra assistance and confidence can be a huge issue too with performance and sometimes people are just assessed too early, they're desperate to drive, go out for an assessment and they, they just need more time for recovery so they're reasons why people might fail a driving assessment but certainly in the brain injury population there's a lack of knowledge about how those um, uh, issues can affect driving. So the second study was really to try and just get some answers around all of um, those sort of questions about um, and the sorts of issues of why people fail and um, Also, I wanted to know a bit more about the timing of when people got back to driving. And um, so, by looking retrospectively at when people had had their assessments and uh, when they got back to driving, I was able to find out the answer to that. And also, how often we were prescribing restricted licences for people. Didn't know that. And what the goals were of the driver rehabilitation. So, in this sample, we had 340 Patients who'd all done a driving assessment and it's over a 12-year period and I had to go through, um, well actually out of those 340, 94 of them, or 28 per cent, had driving lessons. So to collect the data I had to go through all the OT driving um, (laughs) reports to read what the goals were for the driving lessons and that's, so that's how I got the answers to all of this which took me quite some time. Um, And again, the patients we get at Epworth are mainly compensable so this is another key thing for people not working in the compensable area. All the driving lessons were able to be funded by the, the TAC or work cover, in some cases, oh yeah, um, but if you don't have that access to that then it can be a fairly costly process. This doesn't include any learner drivers because they're quite a different kettle of fish um, and they're a separate group. So it's really just looking at rehab provided to people that um, needed uh, to um, uh, yeah, get back to driving, licensed drivers. Also I included all the older drivers because I thought well they do form quite a proportion of the older, um, uh, the TBI population often due to falls. So they're in there as well. Um, all of the drivers had Um, completed the same off and on-road assessments, some of them had had neuropsych assessments and at the end of the on-road assessment they were all given um, feedback and specific examples of any errors that had occurred and why they needed driver rehab, how many lessons and the goals. And just a couple of examples, um, I mean there's one patient that um, during his assessment, he became quite fatigued. He also had a physical issue; couldn't steer very well because of a left in, left arm incoordination. But the goal of his driving lessons were, were to improve his steering, um, but uh, and to learn to compensate for that physical issue. But also, he had to learn that to recognise when he was fatiguing, and that he used to veer to off the road a bit, or just you know, and then he'd self-correct. But he learnt that he had to take a break after 20 minutes, and his goal was to be able to drive to and from work, which was a 40-minute drive. So that was what the lessons were for for him. And he ended up with a restricted license. Um, he learnt that he dri- drive to work, stop for coffee there and back at the 20-minute mark, and after um, he'd done that for about six months, came back for a reassessment. And basically, over a two-year period, he had a number of the, uh, reassessments, and his restriction was kind of you know he got to drive further and then it was just lifted and he was very severe actually and the second one was someone that um, another severe TBI his PTA was about um, I think it was 90 days and he um, had a lot of trouble remembering where he was going to drive and he actually needed to use a GPS so the goal of his driving lessons was to teach him to learn a GP learn to use a GPS and uh, again, it was a number of years before he finally drove with an, un- well, an unrestricted license. Provided he had a GPS in the car, <laughs> because he just couldn't remember where to go. So that's sort of some examples of you know how to apply, I guess, driver rehab, um, and it can be an ongoing process. So it might go on you know for a, a, a number of years. I mean, you don't. Just, it's usually I leave it up to the patient to come back and tell me when they want to be reassessed. Um, so in that particular study, 72% um, of the whole group passed, um, and the 28 of the 28% that needed driver rehab, um, well, most of them passed. There were only seven actually, seven patients out of the 94 who didn't get back to driving. And um, on average, uh, people needed about seven driving lessons. The range was from one to thirty-five, but most people, like 81% of the group, needed less than 10 lessons to get back to driving. So most people were requiring less than 10. So often it's, you know, it might be between, yeah, just two and 10. So it's not a huge cost, if you're thinking about it in terms of cost. Um, and 45%, or let's say 48% actually of that group got back with a restricted licence. Um, 19% needed an area restriction. 17% had various um, adaptive equipment and 34% with an automatic condition. Automatic conditions are often required if you're needing adaptive equipment. You can't drive a manual car if you've got a spinning knob, for instance. <coughs> um, the group that passed and, again, the group that um, needed driving lessons, there was, a, again, a difference with um, their PTA duration. You know, they were more severe. And if you look down here, the gender was significant. So the, again, there were more women in the driver rehab group. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. Why? And the um, looking at the timing of when people got back to driving. So the group that passed their average um, months from injury to when they did their off-road was about seven and a half months. That was about the average. And so they were all back. To driving within about 8 months of their injury okay but if you look at the driver rehab group it was about 18 months before they were sort of on average being referred and it often took about 2 years before they actually got back on the road and that's partly due to the severity of their injury but the fact that it you know doing driver rehab takes time so it was quite a you know took quite a bit of time to do that But the range was quite varied too. I mean, it was a huge range. And having said that everyone was um, three months post-injury before they got assessed, I'm not quite sure. I don't think that's quite true because some of them were actually less, one and a half months (laughs) and 1.8 months. So so there might be a few, the odd person with a very mild injury that we perhaps did assess a bit earlier, but generally that was the the rule. So the goals of the lessons. were assigned into five categories. So driving lessons were provided to either to compensate for cognitive, physical or visual issues um, or for confidence or reducing anxiety or for people that were just like just some people were just crappy drivers like they just Poor driving habits. Um, some people needed updating of road law knowledge, and there was quite a few people we who needed who weren't used to driving in Australia. So they actually just needed lessons to practice driving in a new environment. or country people driving in the city, and also that business of lacking lack of recent driving experience. So um, you can. The interesting thing here is that sixty-four percent of people, one their goals um, included goals to address cognitive issues that means there were um, the other uh, 26, 36% pe- of people um, had lessons for other reasons so even though they all had a brain injury not all of them needed driving lessons to address cognitive issues because you we always assume that that's the case and there was a um, variety so not you know there was only um 23 percent of people had driving lessons to address one goal most people had at least two goals so it might have been cognitive issues and visual issues or physical issues um interestingly for eyesight um, we had 16 percent of the group actually one of their goals was to address eyesight issues. So sometimes if someone's lost the sight in one eye, they've got to readjust to driving um, with you know, their depth perception is different. So yeah, there were a range of, go- um, range of reasons for lessons. So um, the significant results from this were that those with the greatest inju- injury severity were more likely to need lessons to compensate for cognitive impairment than those that needed lessons for other reasons. And the interesting thing was that women, the reason why women kept ending up needing lessons was they're just not as confident as men. So <laughs> men, and that's in, that is often a finding in the literature generally that, um, that um, women often are more anxious about driving than men and that's, that's what came out in this study as well. So they were they were more likely to need lessons for confidence. So just the conclusions for the... Um, for this one is that the the providing driving lessons seems to be quite an effective intervention for getting people back to driving and that for people who do fail an initial assessment offering that graded approach um, you know and using restricted licenses can get people back to driving and that not all people with a severe brain injury need driving rehabilitation Um, There were 16 percent of the sample who had sustained a really severe brain injury but they just passed their initial assessment by severe i mean pta duration over 28 days Um, and the third sorry i'll just quickly go through this third study i'm aware we're getting on in time Um, the third study was looking at driver safety and behavior in the longer term and Um, I sent a questionnaire out to two hundred and nine people, I think, and I got one hundred and six responses, which was about fifty two percent came back. Um, they were at an average of four and a half years. They'd all average of four and a half years that they'd been driving following their assessment, but it ranged from ten months to eight years. And the questionnaire was asking them about like how often they drove, how far, um were they employed did they avoid driving like in unfamiliar areas at night on freeways that sort of thing and also how many crashes they'd had now i know that most people aren't going to admit to driving (laughs) to having had crashes and i did tell them that they whatever they told me would not go to vic roads so but who knows what whether it was accurate or not so um what i found was that the rehabilitation group um, obviously were more severe than the um, past group and that they were more likely to modify their driving behavior so the people with the more severe brain brain injury were uh, driving um, less frequently than the past group they tended to drive within um, four times more likely to be driving within 5ks of home and they also were more likely to avoid taking passengers, driving in busy traffic, night and freeway driving than the PASS group. So that was interesting to know that those with a severe brain injury had actually changed their driving behaviour. There was no significant difference that I found in terms of crashes. So I asked them about crashes, comparing their pre-injury and post-injury crash rates and also between the PASS and rehab group. Um, and it's a tricky one because crashes are fairly infrequent anyway um, and the issue of asking people how many crashes you've had often, you know, like it was, um, if it's a minor crash you might have do define a crash as hitting the fence post or you know, running into the car in front. There's quite a few challenges around asking about crashes. Um, but interestingly, 20% of the group reported they were having more near crashes, so they almost crashed. And um, again, if you look at the two groups, 15% of the past group felt they had more near crashes compared to the more severe group reporting 28% of them. Um, and in terms of modifying their driving, reported limiting driving, 40% drove more slowly, 41% had more difficulty navigating, so working out where they were going and planning the routes. And both groups were more likely to avoid night driving. And that's pretty common in the TBI literature, they tend to avoid driving at night. Um, And interestingly, Only two people in the rehab group weren't still driving and one in the past group, so most of the group had still continued to drive, or the ones that answered the questionnaire. And 74% of the group felt that they still had issues relating to their brain injury, so they um, felt that fatigue, concentration and slowness were still issues that affected their driving, so that's possibly why they had modified their driving behaviour. Um, and the other thing that's got nothing to do with driving, but I wanted to know it anyway, was their employment status. And interestingly, both of the groups prior to their injury were ninety five percent of them were either working or studying or involved in you know, something like that. And after their injury, seventy percent of the past group were back doing something, like mostly employed, but only forty percent of the more severe patients had got back to some sort of work or study, which is Yeah, quite a sad finding. Um, 25% felt that their driving ability was worse, but most of them thought they were about the same. (laughs) as pre-injury. And the good thing I felt was that 92% felt that the driving program had actually been helpful. And what they commented on was that it was great to have that formal clearance to drive or that they felt more confident having been told, yes, you're safe to drive. So they were good things to find out. Um, look, I won't go into this in a lot of detail, but just I just wanted to say that I, when you read the literature about are brain injury drivers safe or do they, you know, do they tend to be more involved in crashes it's mixed results and I found that most had modified their behavior and they didn't seem to be all out there having crashes. Um, and most of the research says that, but there's a few studies that Say that they're maybe two and a half times to three times more likely to have crashes. The thing that none of the studies ever talk about is: Did they actually have any driver rehab, or did they just all go off driving? Because it's not there's not a lot of um, studies at all that look at whether what the effects of driver rehab on safety. So I don't think you can prove anything, but certainly people do modify their driving behaviour, or some of them do anyway. Um, think I'll just skip that. Anyway, so that's basically what the PhD has been about and hopefully um, it's contributed something (laughs) somewhere along the line. Um, Yeah, so we'll see where that ends up. And I'd have to acknowledge I've got wonderful supervisors, Jenny Ponsford, Marilyn DeStefano and Jude Charlton um, and Gershon Spitz has been the person that's helped me with all the statistics because that's not my area of strength at all. Um, just going to... I might just quickly, this is quite quick, but just wanting to let you know that driving simulators are now sort of certainly becoming more um, prevalent, not in Australia but overseas. There's only, Epworth have one and one other hospital in Western Australia. Um, And I'm going, in three weeks I'm actually, have a Churchill Fellowship to go and look at how they're being used overseas. And um, the main areas I'm interested in interested in are how they're being used with older drivers, because there's some evidence that if you, just with normal healthy older drivers, if you give them 10 sessions on a driving simulator, their um, performance can improve on road. Um, Also wanting to look at um, how they can help with people following stroke, MS, some visual conditions. And also um, in America they're using them a lot with some of the returned servicemen with post-traumatic stress disorder. So quite a few people working with them to improve that. Um, Also how training people with a physical disability to use vehicle modifications. And we're doing that quite a bit at Epworth at the moment, particularly amputees. And the other area that I think they would be really useful is for looking at, um, at the moment, learner drivers with a disability have no, um, really they have to go out with a driving instructor or there's some off-road courses, but um, you can't really break the task down for them. So with a driving simulator, I guess you could um, you know, just train them to drive in a straight line in a safe, stress-free environment see how they go or if you've got someone with cerebral palsy perhaps who needs to learn to use a spinner knob you can sort of train them to do that in a very simple traffic environment and grade the complexity so they've got more to deal with so i think there's quite a bit of potential Um, and at the moment parents with children with a disability really have got nowhere to go Um, so that's one area that i think could be quite a good use for them Um, there's different types of simulators and I've, in the US I'm actually looking at these four, this, I never know how to say it, I'll find out when I get there, STISM or STISM, I'm not sure how you say that, that seems to be the type of simulator that's mainly used. There's another one called a DORON and then there's a group called Drive Safety and Virage, they're the US and Canada based ones. Um, most of them are going to be exhibiting their simulators at the American OT conference in Chicago so I'm going to go and see a few there. And the rest of my trip will be looking at or talking to clinicians and going into hospitals and with people, I've tried to select people with different um, diagnostic groups and I'm interested to know too, it's all very well, um, some of them say you can assess people's driving, I don't think you can but if they do, how do they tell their driver licensing authority, oh we saw someone on the simulator and we think they're fine, I don't. so that's the sort of stuff I'm going to find out about. Um, Then I go to France, the simulator we have is a French one, so I'm hoping to learn a bit more about it (laughs) when I get there, and um, then going to the UK and they've got this thing called a mobility road show where um, you can drive, well they've got a a Grand Prix track, um, a historic Grand Prix track apparently called Silverstone in the middle of England, Um, you can actually test out driving adaptions and things on the racetrack, so that's what I'm doing in UK and hopefully visiting somewhere that trains driving instructors too. I want to get a bit more information about how they're training driving instructors for working with people with disability. Um, So yeah, as I said, they're a really low stress sort of option for people um, to get back to driving if you just want to introduce people slowly and um, testing reaction times, they also do that quite well as as well. Cherylene Claassen is an OT from the US who's done a lot of research into this, and she's basically said that um, there's something that you can use in addition to assessing patients. They shouldn't really be used with older drivers. She has found that they don't don't have a clue what they're doing on them. Um, the other problem with a driving simulator is people get sick, like motion sickness. So not everyone can actually last on it more than about five or ten minutes. But many people can but it just varies so they've um, and she's also recommended that if ots are going to use them they actually need to have appropriate education and training to use them and also know how to try and minimize simulator sickness Um, so hopefully when i get back um, i'll know a bit more about driving simulators and i guess if they do become more common in australia we would need to look at how people are using them, who's using them, um, also look at how they, are, they could be funded um, and I think my long term vision would be that if we could sort of have a number of centres where people could actually access them at a low cost um, would be ideal. Mm. So that's it, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you, Pam. That's great. We've got some time for okay. questions, and I was going to just jump in with a really random question. How much is a driving simulator? Okay. Well, um, there's a guy down in Bayswater who we've just I've just learnt about, and so these two ladies here. Who's he says he can make one for twenty-seven thousand dollars. The one we've got at Epworth, um, I have to say, it was donated. We were very fortunate, quite out of the blue, to have some um, a family decided they wanted to buy one for us. It wasn't even on the radar. And that was um thirty-eight thousand, but we've had to have it adapted um with spinner knobs and um left foot accelerator pedal and that was another seven thousand. So all up that forty five thousand. So that's the sort of price range we're talking. You can see why there's not that many around. Mm. Yeah. Pamela <laughs> yeah. if someone's not compensable, what, uh, roughly what's the cost of getting a driving assessment and all that, that process oh the whole process um it really varies depending on what people charge but um you'd probably be looking you could be looking at around five to six hundred dollars including the driving instructor as well yeah for the private OT hmm. I just I, look it's interesting I mean if you get an electrician or a plumber in you've got to pay a bit of money for that too and I suppose I just but it, look it, it's a, it's an issue and I know in I think in New South Wales they're actually trying to look at it talking you know to the state government about perhaps how to uh, you know because if you're asking people to do these assessments and they can't afford them mm-hmm. and there are of course um, some of the public hospitals you can put your name on a waiting list but they can be quite extensive yeah mm. just um practically yeah how would you go Um, Yes it depends what system you're in I suppose but yeah you just well um, VicRoads actually have a list of all the private driving OTs the first thing is though that you have to have the medical report from the doctor to say that medically they're okay to drive and that they need a driving assessment so once you've got that once the person has that then they um, that gets sent to VicRoads and VicRoads will then send the person, a letter, telling them they must do a driving assessment with an OT within eight weeks and here is the list of OT driving assessors. And the assessors all do the retraining as well? No. Okay, so how do you...? Well, you would, well hopefully the OT, if they see there's potential, they would hopefully be liaising with the driving instructor that either did the assessment with them or have access to perhaps another driving instructor they might know about to say, look, this person is going to need five six lessons and, and then the OT reassesses at the end. But, yeah, most OTs should do that. Yeah. One, one more quick question. Yep. Would, how often would you say that people might have free training before they do an assessment or would they always have to do the assessment first? Yeah, well, if they've got a medical condition that says they shouldn't be in a car drive, like they shouldn't... If they've been advised not to drive, then um, they really shouldn't be out there driving um that's why they they need you need this doctor's letter first and the the whole idea of the assessment is to identify how that impairment is affecting the driving so people often say that you know they get all they want to go and do their lessons first and you say well no the purpose of the assessment is to find out what the issues are and why you need if you need driver rehab and then to do the rehab and then we reassess yeah so that's the